For those of you who haven't figured out the uh, humor on the screen, <laughs> the, uh, the, the anti-littering slogan in, slogan in Texas is don't mess with Texas. So uh, in light of recent uh, electoral events, this is appropriate. From the uh, that, remember that's from the former Republic of Texas. <laughs> well, the church has a bid out on it. <laughs> okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. They will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. So before we begin our study of the Word, which is the breathed-out, absolute truth, the mind of Christ, we need to have the Holy Spirit, who is given to us by God, who dwells every believer and fills us, for the purpose of helping us understand and to retain and recall uh, the doctrines that we study so that we can apply them, and He, the Holy Spirit, uses them to produce spiritual growth and spiritual fruit in our lives. So we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, and so we need to take a few minutes to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have your word to study, that though it is clear and lucid, it is not always easy for us to understand it, and it demands concentration and focus and years of study and thought to be able to accurately divide your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we can understand it more clearly, we can see how you have uh, overseen the outline of human history that you are working things out for an ultimate purpose that brings glory to you in the midst of the angelic rebellion. So, Father, we pray that you would guide our thinking, help us to focus and concentrate. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in our 14th installment on Dispensations and Covenants, and we started the last time, some two weeks ago, on the New Covenant. Now, the New Covenant is not necessarily something that is uh, easy for everyone, including dispensationalists, to understand. There are some aspects. Y'all can come on and sit up front. That's okay. I'm just getting started. There are aspects of the New Covenant that have been debated 
in-house by dispensationalists. One of the factors that if you have read any in this subject is that earlier dispensationalists made a distinction and tried to argue that there were two new covenants in the Scriptures. One new covenant to Israel and another new covenant to the church. Now the problem that theologians run into at times is that they, try to, they, they build a theology and then there's a tendency and a pressure to, to develop theology from your theological framework instead of from the Scriptures. And uh, by the 1950s, people like John Walbert, who is probably the dean of dispensational thinkers still alive, last week when I was in Dallas at the pre-trib rapture study group meeting, Dr. Walbert presented a... Uh, Lecture, 91 years old, sharp as a tack, presented a uh, lecture on uh, biblical reasons for the rapture. Dr. Walver, Dr. Ryrie, who was the head of the theology department at Dallas Seminary when I was there and is probably considered second only to Walver in dispensational camps as far as dispensational thought is concerned, used to hold to, as well as others like Dwight Pentecost and a number of others, used to hold to a view that there were two new covenants. By the early 60s, all of the above had pretty much done away with the idea that there were two new covenants and said there's only one new covenant with Israel, and the church benefits from the blessings of that covenant just as Gentiles did in the Old Testament from the covenant with Abraham. Because there is no passage. The problem we run into in trying to say there's two new covenants is there is not one single passage. And we'll look at all of them. But there isn't one passage that says that God has entered into a covenant with the church. Now, that's one problem. That's sort of what I would call an in-house dispensational problem. And the reason I go into these things is because we live in an era where there are a lot of changes taking place. There are places like Dallas Seminary that have traditionally been bastions of truth, uh, bulwarks for the teaching of dispensational theology that are, uh, that foundation has been seriously eroded since the middle 80s. So for the last 15 years, there has been a gradual deterioration of dispensational thought at Dallas Seminary so that I predict, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I predict that five years from now, they probably won't be uh, dispensational in the historic sense because the token dispensationalists that they still keep around on faculty are all either in post-retirement and they are kept along to teach one course a semester, like Dr. Walvard, or they are, uh, are they on the verge of leaving. There are also other problems going on down there that I don't want to get into. But uh, its days are numbered unless the new president comes in and is willing to um, uh, make George Patton look like Mickey Mouse. And I don't see too many theologians today who have the... Uh, you know, they used to call patent blood and guts. They don't have the uh, nerve to be that rough and tough with a 
theological faculty and go in and fire 60% of them because they really don't believe in the doctrinal statement anymore. And yet I think that's the case at Dallas Seminary. And uh, it's a sad, a sad day. And that's why the Lord is raising up new seminaries like Chafer Seminary in Southern California and uh, Tyndale Seminary and why we need to be consistently praying for them and why financial support needs to be uh, continually increased so that they can be well established. But we know that Jesus Christ controls history and Jesus Christ is in control of these things. And so we just need to continue to pray. But this issue of the new covenant is not only, has not only been a little fuzzy in terms of whether there's one new covenant to Israel or a new covenant to Israel, a new covenant to the church, but these issues are also at the very core of the battle between the new so-called progressive dispensationalists, which are really sort of a, um, a non-traditional uh, revisionist, uh, Dr. Ryrie in his new, new book with a new chapter on progressive dispensationalists says we ought to call them revisionist dispensationalists, and I think that's right because they are not true dispensationalists. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of issues on that, but one of the subtleties that's happening today, you know, one of the reasons I go into some things like that is we have at least a half a dozen seminary students who listen to tapes on a consistent basis. Uh, one of which is in this congregation regularly. And uh, they need to hear a little more detail than some of you need to hear. But I may not go down this road again for a while, so it needs to be on tape and on record for, uh, for the future so people can come back and listen to some of these arguments when the issues come up. What is happening today is in the- theological circles are not too different from some legal circles, and we've certainly seen some examples in the culture at large of legal wranglings over minutia and uh, word technical word meanings. And the same thing happens in theological circles. And I don't think it's any um, any uh, just chance happening that some of the better known theologians in church history were lawyers before they were theologians. Calvin was a lawyer before he was a theologian, and several others were also cross-trained in the legal field. So there's a lot of importance paid to technical vocabulary. What happens today is you might hear somebody come out of Dallas Seminary and uh, come to a church, and they don't sound like they're saying anything wrong, but but if you don't know the right words to listen for, you won't spot it. And one of the things that you will hear is a simple word, inaugurate. Now, inaugurate, if you look it up in the, in, the, um, in the dictionary, means to bring something into action, to begin something, to start something. And what they will say is that the uh, Messianic kingdom was what we would say, what we've traditionally taught and what we believe here at Preston City Bible Church, is that when Jesus Christ came at the first advent, he offered the kingdom. The kingdom was rejected, and it was postponed, and it will not be established and begin until Jesus returns at the second coming, at the second advent, to establish his kingdom and to begin the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ when he sits literally on the throne of David in a literal Jerusalem. However... And according to uh, revisionist dispensationalism, 
they come along and say that the kingdom was inaugurated at the first advent. It was inaugurated. It's not fully here. It is gradually or progressively coming in. It's progressively coming in. And so there are elements today of the kingdom. And that's where it opens itself up to, to uh, certain manifestations of the Spirit that are like Joel 2, and those passages are brought in. And uh, uh, there, there's another group of uh, Pentecostals came up through our Charismatics under the Vineyard Movement, and they argue the same kind of thing, that since, since it was inaugurated, then we should expect to see certain signs of the Spirit in this age. And that is, was then merged with a, another form of teaching that came out of the, uh, well, it didn't, just, didn't really come out of the charismatic movement. It has its roots in American revivalism. And because most Americans are ignorant of church history, and if you think you're ignorant of church history, you can uh, get the tapes from John that I've done on the history of, the, history of Christianity. I think it was uh, four tapes. Is that what it is, four tapes? 2,000 or five tapes, 2,000 years of church history in five hours. Jogging through church history. But that will give you a framework for understanding some things. See, Hegel, who was a 19th century German philosopher, said that we learn from history, that we learn nothing from history. And that's exactly right, because Americans don't have a historical perspective, and evangelicals don't have a clue what their historical roots are in terms of theology. We constantly get sucked into all kinds of false doctrine, because we just don't have this kind of framework. And American revivalism goes all the way back to the 1740s, when there was what was called the First Great Awakening in the American colonies. Now, I do believe that the first great awakening, which started uh, up here in New England, started with the preaching of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Mass., uh, started with a sermon he preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it was fueled by the evangelistic meetings of uh, George Whitfield when he came over from England. Whitfield was a short, barrel-chested evangelist who would stand up on a stump, and one time in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin, who was a close friend of Whitfield's, was standing on the edge of the crowd, could, said, I could hear him clearly, and I estimate the size of the crowd to be between 15 and 20,000. This was without benefit of a PA system. No electronics. He just had a strong, booming voice. Anyway, I do believe there were many people who were saved during that time, but what happened, there are times in history when God the Holy Spirit moves in tremendous ways, and there's a lot of positive volition, and a lot of people are saved. But what happened after that in American history is that people looked back to that and said, we need that again. But there was also another element, another element that came into play in American, uh, in American revivalism and the First Great Awakening, and that was something called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism comes from is a breakdown. Post means after. Post mill. Post means after. There are three views of the relationship of Jesus Christ's second coming. 
We are premillennialists. That means we believe that the, right after the cross, on the day of Pentecost, you had the institution of the church. The church began on the day of Pentecost, and the church ends when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds to rapture, the exit resurrection of the church, to rapture believers into heaven. He does not come all the way to the earth at that time. Then there is somewhat of a transition period. We don't know how long that will be between the rapture and the time the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, signs the uh, covenant of peace with Israel. And that kicks off Daniel's 70 weeks. That lasts for seven years, the 70th of Daniel's 70 weeks, which is a period of seven years. And that ends when Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the Mount of Olives, rescues Israel, the regenerate that remain, uh, approximately one-third, two-thirds are killed during the horrible uh, plagues and battles that are judgments poured out on the earth towards the end of the tribulation. Jesus Christ returns at the second coming to establish his kingdom, which will last for 1,000 years, at the end of which is the great white throne judgment, the present earth is destroyed, and the creation of new heavens and new earth. This 1,000-year period, 1,000, it relates to the Latin word mille, meaning a 1,000. And so we believe Jesus comes back before the millennium, so we believe in a pre-millennial return of Christ. Sometimes all these technical terms get past some folks. It's 50 years ago when Charles Feinberg, who at that time was... um, professor of Hebrew at Dallas Seminary, when Charles Feinberg wrote a book called Millennialism, Charles Feinberg wrote in the preface that post-millennialism was all but dead. Well, it has risen from the dead, and it is a dominant force in modern evangelical life. And post-millennialism says that Jesus doesn't come back until at the end, after post after the millennium. And what happens is, according to their view, that there will be a gradual improvement until the utopic millennial period is ushered in by the church and then Jesus returns to a somewhat perfect world order. Uh, We do not believe that. But that view, post-millennialism, and there's another view, amillennialism, which says that this isn't literal at all. It's merely a, um, a, another way of talking about what happens during the church age. That's called amillennialism. Am is from the Greek. It's a negative prefix like un is in English. And it means no millennium, no literal millennium. So anyway, post-millennialism says things are going to get better and better. So you're going to look to the fact that, that in the church at this age is going to have more and more and more of an influence. So we need revivals. American revivalism is fueled by a post-millennial eschatology. This really became apparent in the Second Great Awakening with people like Charles Finney. Charles Finney, by some folks, is considered one of the greatest evangelists, evangelists in American history, But I'm amazed at how many people, and I'm talking about seminary-trained men who have not perceived that Charles Finney did not believe in total depravity. He believed that every single 
person was born as Adam was created. Totally neutral, free from sin, and they become sinners only because of their own negative volition. He did not believe that Jesus died as a substitute for our sins, but He died as an example of how we should live and be committed to to following God's plan for our life. So he is, in fact, a heretic from start to finish and was not a true evangelism, taught a works gospel. And yet his theology, and you can still buy many of his books, and they're very popular with holiness and Pentecostal churches in America. But see, and that is where I'm making a connection. Because they are all prone to revivals. You know, you go to church, we're going to have a revival now, we're going to have a revival next year. Revivalism is fueled by this whole idea that somehow we're going to make our society better and better and better until Jesus comes back. And that is, I'm going to tie all this together with the New Covenant because the picture we see in the church, in the, in the New Testament, is that apostasy increases more and more towards the end of the age, and there is no end-time revival. Now, that's a key phrase that I hear more and more from people today, especially who come out of certain circles, is there must be some sort of end-time revival before Jesus comes back. But think about it. We are to look for what? According to Titus 3, 5, or Titus 3, 6, we're supposed to look for the blessed hope. That's the next thing that we as believers are to anticipate in the prophetic scheme is the blessed hope. We're not to look for the Antichrist because the Antichrist doesn't come first. Christ's return comes first at the rapture. We are to anticipate that. We are to be blessed are those who are looking for His coming, not for the coming of the not for anything that happens first. See, if a revival has to happen before Jesus can come back, then we have to be looking for the revival. If the Antichrist is going to show up on the scene and the tribulation is going to occur before Jesus comes back, then we better be watching for the Antichrist and the tribulation. But the New Testament says that we're to be watching and waiting for the Lord to come back because He will come as a thief in the night. It will be a surprise. It will come suddenly and come swiftly and there is nothing that has to happen before He returns. Now, one of the things that that fuels all of this is, once again, a misunderstanding of New Covenant passages and New Covenant concepts and how the New Covenant relates to the present church age. And we finished last time, and we'll get back to it again in a little bit, in Joel 2. And Joel 2 is a crucial passage because Joel 2 is quoted by Peter in his Day of Pentecost message, that fantastic evangelist evangelism message that he gave on the Day of Pentecost when 5,000 men were saved in Jerusalem in one day. So in order to understand why Peter quoted from from Joel 2, we have to first understand what the Old Testament says about the New Covenant. Paul said, I am a, we are ministers of the New Covenant. Well, if we don't understand what the Old Testament teaches about the New Covenant, how in the world can we even think we understand what Paul meant when he said we're ministers of the New Covenant? So we have to understand the Old Testament background and the Old Testament setting. Now, we haven't looked at this in a while, so we need to back up and understand that there are God, that there are covenants in the Bible and God rules and administers history 
through these covenants, these contracts that God has made with men. And it is through those contracts that God shifts revelation from age to age, and we call those dispensations, those different administrative periods in God's history, those successive administrations of of God's rule of history. So the first three covenants are Gentile covenants. There were no Jews at that time. There was the creation covenant, or as it is traditionally known, the Edenic covenant, Genesis 1, 27 to 28, ended with the fall. That was revised in the Adamic covenant, Genesis 3, 14 through 19. That ended with the flood. And then the Noahic covenant. Now that's roughly uh, comparable to the uh, age of the dispensation of perfect environment, the dispensation of human conscience, and the dispensation of human government. And then with the failure of man at the Tower of Babel, God stepped in to revise the way he dealt with mankind. And now he's going to deal with one man and with his, uh, his descendants, the Jews. So he calls out a Gentile who is a, an aristocrat in Ur of the Chaldees by the name of Avram and gives him a new name eventually, Avraham, father of multitudes. He makes a contract with Abraham that has three segments we've seen, a land promise, a seed promise, and a blessing promise. Now, he just promises Abram that he's going to have a specific piece of real estate in the Middle East, and that will be the families and his descendants in perpetuity forever and ever. He promises him a seed that through his seed all nations would be blessed, And that brings in the third aspect, which is those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Now, those three segments are rather general. They're part of an unconditional covenant. And in order to uh, give or flesh out the meanings of those concepts, God gives three subsequent covenants to Israel. The first is the real estate covenant in Deuteronomy Uh, 29 and 30, the real estate covenant, which defines the land. And we looked at not only that passage, but confirmation passages in the major prophets showing that God was going to return Israel to that piece of real estate and they would finally and ultimately possess the the entire land that God had promised. They have not yet to this date possessed all of the land, but one day they will. He said they would do it under a leader who would come from David. That fulfills the, expands the seed concept. And then the blessing concept is expanded in the new covenant. Now, we have to understand this analogy. You're going to get sick of this. You're going to dream about it, but I want to drill it into you. God is, a contract is between two parties. They can be individuals or they can be groups. You have party of the first part and you have party of the second part. God is the party of the first part. Abraham's party of the second part. They enter into a contract called the Abrahamic Covenant or Abrahamic Contract. As part of that contract, God says, those who bless you, I will bless. Now, those who bless you refers to the Gentiles. We went through that. I outlined 14 different provisions of the Abrahamic Covenant based on on those passages in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And part of those did not relate to Israel per se, but there were dimensions of that contract that related to Gentiles. 
Are Gentiles party the first part or party the second part? No. God's party the first part. Abraham's party the second part. But the Gentiles, there are, there are aspects of the contract that relate to Gentiles. God says, under certain conditions, they will get blessed. So there's a side benefit. It doesn't have anything to do with Abraham or God. But they will get blessed. There are provisions there. If you don't understand that, you will never, ever understand the relationship of the church to the new covenant to Israel. Because remember, what I'm just talking about, God party the first part, Abraham party the second part, by virtue of that relationship and, in, and outlined in the contract are blessings to Gentiles. Blessings to Gentiles are blessing. The expansion of the blessing section of the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant. So when we come to the new covenant, what we will see is that God is party the first part, Israel is party the second part, and by virtue of the fact that God established that covenant when Christ died on the cross, Gentiles are going to be blessed by being brought into a new union because the new covenant replaces the old covenant. The old covenant, according to Ephesians chapter 2, is a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. That's wiped out by the cross so that now they can become one body, the church. And that's because God entered into a contract with Israel and said, because of the contract you and I have, it's going to knock out the dividing wall between you and Gentiles. And so now the church can have blessing and I can bless them in specific ways because I have a contract with you. It's just like with Abraham. The church does not have to be, is not ever mentioned as a contract partner. Okay? Now we're going to look at all that, but I'm sort of, this is, people can get lost in all the details in this, so I'm going to be telling you what, you know, the old uh, adage, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. (laughs) So we're going to have a lot of repetition over this to make sure you, you get it. Now, this is how it works out. Promises are made in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, and in the undetermined future. There's our outline on the chart of human history, the history of Israel in the past going up to the uh, fulcrum dispensation. The, everything turned on the dispensation of the Messiah when Christ was on the earth. The Abrahamic covenant is established during the formation of Israel. The real estate covenant is given in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, and it's not fulfilled until the millennium. Then the Davidic covenant is given to David in 2 Samuel 7, and that is fulfilled in the millennium kingdom when Jesus Christ returns bodily to the earth, uh, destroys the enemies of Israel, and establishes His kingdom operating from His throne in Jerusalem. The new covenant also does not come into playing until the millennium. We will see how that relates as we develop our thoughts. Now, the theocratic dispensations we've studied go along with the, the covenants. Uh, the Edenic covenant insti- initiated the um, age of human perfection or dispensation of human perfection in the age of the Gentiles. Then the Adamic covenant brought in the dispensation of conscience. The Noahic covenant brought in the dispensation of civil government. 
The Abrahamic covenant introduced the dispensation of patriarchs, and the Mosaic covenant brought in the dispensation of the law. And then you have an interesting period, the, the dispensation of the Messiah. And that's interesting because he fulfills the law. Christ is the end of the law, Romans 16 says. So everything Christ did is to complete the law, to finish the law, to fulfill the law, to bring it to completion. So everything in the Old Testament is brought to completion in Jesus Christ. But at the same time that he brings that to completion and does so by fulfilling all the requirements of the law, he does it in a way that sets the precedent and establishes the pattern for the spiritual life of the church age. So it is what one might call a hinge dispensation. It has, um, there are certain elements during that time that don't change. For example, for, for most Jews living throughout the world, they're ignorant of any dispensational shift. That's why it's, a, it's, it's kind of a quasi-dispensation. But it fits all of the requirements that we will see that, that are true of a dispensation. So I think it, it is a unique time in history because there is a unique revelation of God in the Logos who is the only one who has seen God, Jesus Christ. He is the one. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God, He is the one who has explained Him. So here's the chart. We see the age of perfect environment, the creation covenant. The responsibility was to fulfill the covenant. They failed by eating the fruit, and the judgment was spiritual death. Then the second dispensation of conscience, the Adamic covenant. Animal sacrifice was the standard operation procedure for spiritual life and for salvation. They were evil and wicked, until, and generation after generation rejected God until there were very few who had any positive volition. God sent the flood to white and destroyed the human race in judgment because of the uh, uh, incursion, the infiltration of the sons of God, the angels in Genesis 6, the Beneha Elohim. Then the human government is instituted under the Noahic covenant. They were to fill the earth. Instead, they built Babel and kept together. God judged them with the confusion of languages. Then you have the age of the patriarchs with the Abrahamic covenant. They were to stay a distinct people, but they assimilated. By the fourth generation, they're intermarrying with the Canaanites. So God judged them by putting them in bondage in Egypt, where they were uh, the, the uh, objects of racism so that the Egyptians would not intermarry with the Jews and destroy their racial purity. The Mosaic law was then established when they came out to establish a new nation. They were to obey the law. They disobeyed the law. And then we have the Messianic Age. Now I'm going to just flip through that, and then we're going to we'll come back to that later. We looked at the New Covenant last time. We saw a key passage with Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The persons are God, party the first part. The house of Judah and the house of Israel, party the second part. In terms of its importance, it is the uh, basis for blessing. It is the basis for salvation. Jesus Christ refers to it at the Last Supper when he takes the cup and says, This is the new covenant of my blood, which is given as a substitute for you. 
and it is the foundation for Israel's regener spiritual regeneration and return to the land in the Messianic kingdom. We looked at the provisions. There are seven provisions. I want to review these. First of all, it is an unconditional covenant between God and both houses of Israel, Judah the southern kingdom and Israel the northern kingdom. That includes all 12 tribes. And incidentally, there aren't any 10 lost tribes. Don't fall prey to thinking there were there are 10 lost tribes. There are no lost tribes. God knows. First of all, God knows where everyone is. Secondly, when Assyria came in and wiped out the northern kingdom, there were members of every tribe that fled south and took up habitation in the south. Third, when they were deported from the northern kingdom and put into Assyria and scattered around Assyria, when the Babylonians defeated Assyria, those Jews assimilated with the new Jews that came out of the southern kingdom in Judah, and they all knew who they were, and they kept their genealogical records. And when they returned at the end of that captivity, there were members of, according to the Bible, of every tribe of Israel returned to the land. So there's no such thing as ten lost tribes. Second, the new covenant is distinct from the Mosaic covenant, and the text says it's not according to the covenant made when Israel came out of Egypt. That means it is distinct from the Mosaic covenant, excuse me, and will replace the Mosaic covenant. Third, it promises the regeneration of Israel, and this will be universal among all Jews. And we'll see that when we get into New Testament passages. Every single Jew will be saved. Fourth, there will be forgiveness of their sins. Verse 34. Fifth, there will be the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in every Jewish believer, according to Ezekiel 36.27, and certainly implied in uh, the Jeremiah 31.34 passage. Sixth, there will be material blessing and prosperity for all of regenerate Israel, and all Jews will be saved, according to Romans 11. Jeremiah 32.41, Isaiah 61.8, and Ezekiel 34.25 to 27. Seven. A sanctuary will be rebuilt. This will be the fourth Jewish temple. The first Jewish temple was Solomon's temple. The second Jewish temple is the uh, temple that they built when they returned from the land. It was Zerubbabel's temple. I mean, when they returned from the exile in Babylon. As Zerubbabel's temple, it was built under Ezra. And it was later refurbished by Herod, who spent millions of dollars in a tremendous uh, building campaign and um, redid the temple. But that's still the third temple. That was destroyed in 70 A.D. There will be... A, I mean, that was the second temple. The third temple is the pseudo-temple... It is the tribulation temple that is built on the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Mosque in current parlance is built. That is the issue today in uh, Israel. Uh, just an interesting note, the Jews captured the Temple Mount in the 1967 war. Uh, recent, this recent uprising, the Intifada, that uh, began, Intifada is Palestinian for uprising, that began in September when uh, Ariel Sharon went on the Temple Mount 
That was just an excuse. The Temple Mount has been owned, operated, and controlled by Jews since 1967. Israeli police have kept Jews off the Temple Mount, except for the areas that they're allowed, since 1967. Arabs worship at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, at the Dome of the Rock, because they are protected by Israeli police. The reason that we are going through this current uprising is because when they had the uh, Camp David meeting back in August, and uh, Barach, Ehud Barach, interesting, he's named for two of the judges we've been studying on Sunday morning. When Ehud Barach uh, uh, offered to Arafat more than any Jewish leader has ever offered to any Palestinian, Arafat refused it. By refusing it, he lost face among all the nations. Because everybody said, you should have taken it. You've never been offered so much. Why did you refuse it? So the uh, Arafat had to go back and get the Palestinians ready to start some kind of a war so that things would get so bad that they would have a bargaining position to get what they wanted when they finally go back to the bargaining table. And so they were ready. They were just looking for any excuse they could. And Sharon did nothing wrong. There was nothing special. Anything could have happened to set them off. But the Palestinians were ready, and they were primed. They got all the little kids out in front and all the women behind them. And then the, the brave Palestinian men uh, with their machine guns uh, stood behind them and fired at the, at the uh, Israeli Jewish soldiers. So when the Jewish soldiers fired back, they uh, inadvertently hit women and children. Uh, in one of the episodes, which has become well-known, there's a picture of a, of a Palestinian child who was killed in that first time. I forget his name now, who was allegedly killed by uh, Israeli soldiers. He was killed on a bridge about 10 miles from the school where he was supposed to go and about 10 miles off the school bus route. And he just happened to be there with his father, uh, cut, cutting class that day, and uh, the Palestinian, the PLO will not allow an autopsy to be performed on his body simply because he's got Palestinian bullets in his body because he was shot by the PLO. He was not shot by the Jews, uh, by the Israelis, and they shot him so that they would have a martyr for their cause to get everybody fired up to go against the Jews. You can't trust what the Palestinians are saying about almost anything. I mean, there are so many myths, and as we get into the next couple of years and go through an in-depth study of different aspects of prophecy, we're going to have to do a, an analysis of Arab-Israeli relations, and uh, we'll find some interesting things that a lot of things that most of us think are true are false. And it's really, you know, there, there wasn't even a concern for Palestinians or their homeland until after the 1967 war. 1948, um, there was an exodus of Palestinians from uh, the land, from is the area controlled by Israel, and it, the number of Palestinians that left was about the same as the number of Jews that got expelled from Arab lands. The money that was left behind by the Palestinians was about equivalent to the money that was left behind by the Jews. It was an even trade. And the, the Palestinians couldn't go anywhere because the Arabs, according to a statement by uh, someone as, uh, as noteworthy as King Hussein of Jordan, 
was that the Arab nations were using the Palestinians as a means to uh, get the nations riled up against Israel. But that didn't really occur to them until about 1967 in the, in the context of the 67 war. So 20 years went by and nobody cared about the Palestinian refugees. Um, and there are other aspects of that. But anyway, this uh, fourth Jewish temple is going to be built. I mean, the third Jewish temple, the Tribulation Temple, is going to be built where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, which is the Dome of the Rock. And so something has to happen to remove it. That temple has to be there, or at least enough of it, and that doesn't mean much, at least enough of it to have a Holy of Holies and a central sanctuary so that the Antichrist can defile the temple in what is known as the abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation period. So the New Covenant promises that a permanent sanctuary, the new, the new millennial temple, will be built according to Ezekiel 37, verse 26 and 27, and it is described in detail in chapters 40 through 48. Okay, that sort of brings us up to date. Last, then we looked at various passages that confirmed the um, Old Testament, confirmed in other Old Testament passages the New Covenant, and we ended at Joel chapter 2. So I want you to open your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. The key passage is Joel 2.28 and following, and I have those verses on the overhead for us. These are the verses quoted or referenced by uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost. I will, it will come about after this. After this refers to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a technical term in the Old Testament prophecy that covers everything from the tribulation. It's not a 24-hour day. From the tribulation through the millennium. The tribulation is viewed as the break. And after these birth pangs in Joel chapter 2, there is a... Um, Joel 2, after the previous part of Joel 2, describes the tribulation and the destruction that occurs at the battle of Armageddon. And it says, after these things. So after this mean, is a reference to the uh, judgments of the tribulation. So it locates the fulfillment of this prophecy in time. Now the interesting thing about Joel 2 is it uses two phrases that have become popular in revivalistic terminology. At least one of them has become popular in revivalistic terminology. And that is the term latter rain, which is used in Joel 2.23. And that phrase goes back to, uh, I know for a fact that it goes back to at least Phoebe Palmer, who was a uh, woman who taught Bible, she was a Methodist woman who taught Bible classes in uh, New York City. And she really begins what's known as the holiness movement. She begins the holiness movement because by that time there was a great decline in America in church attendance. And there's a real easy explanation for that. You see, we have a problem in America. It's called pragmatism. 
We look around, we've got a lot of people in our church, and we say, God's blessed us. We look around, and all those people are gone, and we say, what have we done wrong? It doesn't have anything to do with whether we've done wrong. What happened between the tremendous influx of new members in churches in the, 19, in the 18 teens and the 1820s and the 1850s was Horace Greeley said, go west, young man. And everybody did. And so all the churches lost a lot of people because everybody went west. It's just simple sociological fact. But everybody sat back. Instead of having 500 at church, they had 200. They went, what are we doing wrong? So Phoebe Palmer sits down and says, ah, we've got to go back to Wesley. And Wesley taught perfectionism. We've missed something. See, perfectionism not only influenced sanctification of spiritual life, that um, the idea that, that as you advance spiritually, you reach a sort of a pinnacle where, where you don't really sin anymore and you reach sinless perfection. Of course, they don't define sin too well when they do that. But perfectionism also meant social perfectionism. Wesley was the partner, at least at the beginning, with the two Wesleys, Charles and John, with George Whitfield. We talked about Whitfield in connection with the First Great Awakening. They were Anglicans who were uh, breaking away from the Church of England, and they were the real founders of a little movement called Methodism. And it was founded, grounded, in the First Great Awakening which has what kind of an eschatological framework? Post-millennial. So we're bringing into perfection. We've got perfectionism in the spiritual life, and we've got perfectionism in the social sphere in terms of politics. American politics. Let me tell you something. You cannot, you think you know American politics? You cannot understand American politics. You can't understand the rise of the religious right. You can't understand the Christian coalition. You can't understand one thing about the influence of religion, even liberalism, on American politics if you don't understand the Second Great Awakening and if you don't understand theology and if you don't understand perfectionism. It has dominated the history of this country ever since the 1820s and is destroying this country. And it all goes back to what happened at, with, with Finney and their teaching in the, in the 18-teens to 1820s because out of that came holiness teaching, which said it had the same post-mill, revivalistic uh, uh, kind of mentality that somehow there's going to be a restoration of, uh, of a greatness of the church at the end times. And the way they picture the church is as if... Um, I knew I had a pen around here somewhere. They picture the church as starting off in the apostolic period as being almost perfect. They have an idealistic view of the apostolic fathers, those who were right after the church, in about 100 A.D. And from there down to about 1200, there is just a decline. Starting in 1200, there is a turn. You have the Reformation in 1500, and then it's going to get better and better until there is the great end-time revival, which then brings in the millennium, and then you have Jesus coming back. Okay? Then you have the second coming. That's post-millennialism. And that's, that, is, uh, that dominated holiness thought. It, and what was, the, what was the child of holiness movement? The Pentecostal movement. 
And the Pentecostal movement gave birth to the charismatic movement. Charismatic movement was called the second great the second great move of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century. And the third great move was called the Vineyard Movement. And the Vineyard Movement and the Charismatic Movement and the Vineyard Movement gave birth to contemporary Christian music and contemporary Christian courses. You can't understand that if you don't understand it's post-mill restorationist uh, perfectionist roots. It also gave birth to the Vineyard Movement. The Vineyard Movement, the Vineyard Music label, has just about usurped the Maranatha Music label of uh, Calvary Chapel that was kind of the benchmark church in Southern California out of which the whole Jesus revival came at the end of the 1960s. And that the, the Vineyard Movement gave birth to the... Uh, uh, gave birth to this laughing revival called the uh, Pensacola Revival where you have laughing in the spirit, people running up and down the aisles. You may not have ever seen it, but I know of at least three churches within 20 miles of this church that are influenced by, the, uh, by this uh, Pensacola Revival. And it also gave birth to another phenomenon of the 90s called the Promise Keepers because the head of the Promise Keepers and his pastor who was on the board of the Promise Keepers, were his pastor was a vineyard pastor in Denver, and the coach, I can't remember his name, who started the Promise Keepers, was a big vineyard guy, and God revealed himself to him and spoke to him and gave him a vision for starting the Promise Keepers, which is another revivalist movement to perfect the family, to perfect society, so Jesus can come back. See, it all flows from prophecy. If you don't understand prophecy, you can't understand what's moving these movements, what the motivation is in these contemporary icks, acts, and spasms that are affecting the local church. And it all comes out of prophetic things. So uh, to tie it up again, you have another um, uh, guy who came, got involved with the Vineyard Movement. He was a great Hebrew professor of mine at Dallas Seminary. Uh, really enjoyed some of the courses I had under him. And then he got involved. In fact, two of my Hebrew professors when I was at Dallas uh, as doing my THM work later became involved with the Vineyard Movement in the late 80s. And back then, I guess, especially if it's charismatic, they still had the theological uh, uh, intestinal fortitude, shall we say, to uh, fire somebody for not holding to right doctrine. So they, got, they did not renew their contracts, fired them. And one of the men named Jack Deere went out and became John Wimber's assistant pastor. And he preached a message. I went out there a couple of times and went to a couple of their conferences as a critical observer. And I was appalled by some of the close friends of mine that I saw who were out there as non-critical observers. Left their brains after they got out of seminary, I guess. But anyway... I went out there, and uh, Jack preaches a sermon on Joel's army. Joel's army. Where do we hear about Joel's army? Well, look right here in, jo- in Joel 23. It talks about that God poured out the early rain and the latter rain. And what the Pentecostals did and what the holiness crowd did and what the perfectionists did was they came in and they had this view of church history in the early apostolic period of tremendous growth and blessing is called for them the early reign. See how they allegorize the passage. This isn't literal interpretation. 
See, if you get away from literal interpretation, you, you get away from, from dispensationalism, you get away from a proper understanding of the covenants, and you distort history, and you distort politics and society, and everything else gets messed up. They call that the early reigns, and this alleged end-time revival would be the latter reign, the outpouring of the blessing of God on the church at the end times. So Joel 2.23 mentions the latter rain. Here it's just using the meteorological cycles in Israel as an analogy. In Israel, you have to have rain in the spring at planting time and rain right before the harvest in order to have an adequate crop. And what this is saying is that be glad, O sons of Zion, because God has given you the proper rains. There's not famine. Famine was part of the fourth cycle of discipline. You don't understand Leviticus 26. You can't understand this. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture and know what's what. And God said, if you're disobedient to me, I am going to withhold the rains and the sky will be like bronze. And that's what happened with Elijah. That's why Elijah went to, went to Ahab and said, it's not going to rain. Until I say so. Why? Because Ahab would know that was part of God's judgment in relationship to Leviticus 26 and their idolatry with Baalism. So here he's saying just the opposite. God has given you the early and latter rains. He's blessing you. It's in the context of of Levitical blessings. And the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil that I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust. See, that's judgment. These are all signs of... What does a locust do? He comes in and he just stripped the land of all of its produce, just as the Midianites are stripping the land in Judges 6 under Gideon. So it's an image of uh, of divine judgment. This is not an army. But you come along, you allegorize, and you say, oh, there's going to be this great end-time army bringing in the latter rain. And so what, what they have done is they have developed this whole doctrine called Joel's Army. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been around charismatic circles and you've heard this. That's why I have to teach some of this stuff is so some of you will put two and two together begin to figure out what's going on. Um, you have Joel's Army. And... And they started preaching this, and a really wacko guy by the name of Paul Kane came along. And Paul Kane had been one of the old tent revivalists back in the eight, uh, 1940s and somehow disappeared for a while and suddenly was back on the scene. And I was there the night he said he saw blue lights coming in and hovering over people, and then he would give a, give a little word of knowledge and heal them. I didn't see any blue lights, but I always call it the blue light special. <laughs> So anyway, he, he and, and uh, Jack Deere were teaching this latter rain, Joel's army thing. And then the next thing they said was that Joel's army was the 144,000 in Revelation. Now, the 144,000 in Revelation are 12,000 evangelists from each of the 12 tribes understood literally. Those are Jewish evangelists in the tribulation. But what they've done now is the way they're interpreting Scripture is they're putting the 144,000 into the church age as part of this end-time revival that it's going to be that great army and that's really the church. See, that's what... I just want you to have a taste of how wacko it is out there in evangelicalism. And all of this is designed to bring in this great end-time revival so that Jesus can come back and we can purify our society. See... Prophecy drives 
all this stuff, and we just don't, people just don't understand it. And so Joel 2 is, is a major battlefield in understanding so many things, and the fact that it's quoted by uh, Peter in Acts 2. So we have to, uh, we have to understand that this is, none of these things that happen in Joel 2 happen in Acts 2. Nothing that happened in Acts 2 is recorded in Joel 2. And we'll have to understand that. Now, what happens as we get into the, the New Covenant is that uh, we see some interesting things. I want to add a couple of other passages to finish out the New Testament, Old Testament. I'm going to take about five more minutes just to uh, look at these two new passages to add to the confirmation ones. In Isaiah uh, 49, Isaiah 49, 3 and 4. Did I get that right? Isaiah, well, let's start at Isaiah 42.6. Isaiah 42.6. Turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah 42.6. This is going to add two new dimensions to our understanding of the of the New Covenant as it was prophesied. Understanding the New Covenant in the Old Testament is key to understanding what's going to happen in the, in the New Testament. Isaiah 42 is the introduction of the servant section of the, of the prophecy of Isaiah. It starts off in 42.1. Behold, God is speaking here. He says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is talking about the Messiah. If you look down at verse 5, it says, he, uh, Thus says the Lord God. So God is speaking. God the Father is speaking. He says, He's described as the one who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit, that is life, to those who walk in it. This is what he says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Who is the you? He is speaking to his servant. We have a dialogue here between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past. This is part of the Council of Divine Decrees. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. This is the protection that Jesus Christ had during the Incarnation when He lived and exemplified for us the uh, divine soul fortress that God has prepared for us that we might be able to solve our problems and live our lives to His glory. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you. This is the key phrase. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. Notice, Jesus Christ is appointed a covenant. This is the new covenant. It is in Him. He has appointed a covenant to the people and a light to the Gentiles. That's what brings in that blessing factor of the new covenant. The new covenant is with Israel and the church so that it will be a light to the Gentiles. Now, turn over about three or four chapters to, uh, or six chapters to Isaiah 49, verse 8. Isaiah 49, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you, that is Jesus Christ, the you is correctly capitalized here. It's another conversation between God the Father and God the Son. 
I will keep you and give you the Messiah, the pre-incarnate Christ, the servant in context, give you and give you for a covenant of the people to what? To restore the land, that's the land covenant, to restore the land and make them inherit the desolate heritages. And the context is clearly talking about what will take place at the second coming. So the once again we see that Jesus Christ is the covenant. What we conclude from this is that the servant, the establishment of the covenant is through a mediator. It is that mediator that, that establishes the covenant that provides in turn a blessing to the Gentiles as a light to the Gentiles. So, conclusion. Conclusion number one, the new covenant was announced to be between God, party the first part, and the house of Israel and the house of Judah, party the second part. Second, the new covenant is a permanent replacement of the temporary old covenant called the Mosaic Covenant or Mosaic Law. The new covenant is a permanent replacement of the temporary Mosaic Covenant. Third, the new covenant is, is established by a mediator, the servant who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The new covenant is established by a mediator who is the Lord Jesus Christ called the servant in Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.8. And fourth, the new covenant is called an everlasting covenant and a covenant of peace. Three terms, really, an co- everlasting covenant, a covenant of peace, and my covenant. Now, those are the confirmation passages from the Old Testament, and you can add to it Ezekiel uh, 34, 23 and following, and Ezekiel 37, 24 and following. Ezekiel 34, 23 and following, and Ezekiel 37, 24 and following. And next time... When we come back, we're going to start looking at the New Covenant confirmations, and we'll begin with Romans 11, which says that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, thus all Israel will be saved. So we will see the universal regeneration of Israel in Romans 11, and then we have to deal with those sticky passages in the New Testament that deal with the New Covenant. What does Paul mean when he says that we are servants of the new covenant. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is clear. We thank you that we do not have to guess at its meaning because the interpretation is such that we use the same rules that we use for understanding any other piece of literature. And we understand that you will return that our Lord will return for us in the clouds and we will be caught up to be together with Him forever and ever. And we will be instantly transformed prior to the tribulation. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here who needs salvation, who is unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that we might be encouraged by the fact that You control history and You are working out Your purposes in human history to glorify Yourself and to resolve the angelic conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.